0: The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com
1: No purchase necessary. Void. we're prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon. This is the Snooker Scene Podcast. Once again, I'm joined by... Michael McMullen. and the big news of course this week is that snooker's back with the Championship League. It will be starting on June the first. We'll get to that in due course. Our main topic this week, though, is going to be great snooker rivalries. We're going to be talking about some of the great matchups over the years. Uh, but before all of that, we do have some follow-up emails. Uh, last week we were talking about uh, the, what were we talking about the greatest players of all time. That was it. it yes. Seems-
2: Minor topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, well, this isn't about that actually, but it's from Ben Burgess who asks
1: a very um, appropriate question, I think. First of all, he says thanks for the podcast efforts; you've kept me entertained for hours. Newborn baby, dog walking, etc. He said, due to the current situation, is Judd the longest reigning first time champion? Well, I guess he must be at the Crucible purely because the tournament hasn't been staged. Yeah, it's
2: uh, yeah, it's an interesting one. Well, Joe Davis, of course, reigned as as champion. From after he won it in what would have been 1939 or 1940, maybe then he held it obviously for the next five or six years without playing a match. But of course, he had already won it many times and had held it for a long time. So, yeah, I guess as first time champions, it's it's got to be, hasn't it? Unless, of course, in the early uh, days when the championship came back in the late 60s. The dates got moved around a bit, so it's possible that somebody then may have held it for a longer period. Yeah, I mean, I think
1: Crucible years um, definitely. Crucible years for sure. Yeah. 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 Just, but that's just because it hasn't been played. Um, obviously, yeah. we'll find out. We'll find out. Maybe he'll win it, you know, in August, and then can carry it through to next year. Anyway, uh, Jay Brannon on last week's topic, he said, "Was Joe Davis considered by either of you?" I narrowly bumped him out of my list on the basis the sport back then was lacking a season, competition was severely limited. There was no TV pressure. In his favour was the huge accumulation of world titles albeit he didn't have to win as many matches as today and his importance getting the game started and keeping it afloat. Well, certainly his importance, um, it cannot be um, overstated. I mean, he was the first world champion. He was heavily involved in promoting the first world championship. The problem, I guess, was he he didn't have the competition in those days and that wasn't his fault. There just weren't many players. I mean, there were quite a few world championships where he would essentially handpick his opponent. He was just the two of them, him and a challenger. Um, He's on a a list of significant people in the game's history and if you were just going to do the 10 most significant people in snooker all time he'd probably be in the top 10 but he wasn't in my top 10 list of greatest players
2: if you talk about what you just said most significant players you could make a strong case that he'd be number one because mm. i mean he started the world championship they still play for the same trophy today that they were playing for back then but even more than that i mean he basically invented the game as we know it because yeah. you know prior to him coming along and changing it it was just a very different sort of game. You might pot a couple of balls. It was very little in the way of positional play, break building. He basically invented all that. And we talk about Stephen Hendry and the changes he made to the way snooker was played and the sort of shots that were taken on and the approach that was taken to the game by all the players. But long, long before that, Joe Davis took it forward, much greater strides. So, for the reasons you said, I don't think he can be in an all-time top ten, but I think he is the at the very least the ultimate proof of the case that it's very, very difficult to compare different heroes because the context of what he was playing in, as you just outlined there, just completely different to everything that followed. But I think we'll settle for that. If you're talking about influential figures in the game, he's right up there and like i say strong case that he tops everybody else
1: well absolutely i mean steve davis and his dad bill they had the the joe davis put in that's basically how he learned sukkah um that's so what what their sort of bible um another email now you you can advise me here because you're irish donal or donal what do you reckon donal donal any views on that
2: you've cut out there i said donal Oh, uh, you said I didn't. That may have gone out
1: on, on on the thing. I didn't hear you. Okay, fair enough. Anyway, he now you'll like this one thing because it's quite niche. He says, a long-time podcast listener, first-time emailer, but frequent tweeter. The subject of alternate scoring topics. Sorry, alternate scoring formats might make an interesting topic for a podcast. In particular, I don't know why more hasn't been used. We've been. I can't read all of them. In particular, I don't know why more use hasn't been made of an aggregate score format. It would cut out all the dreary mucking around at the end of frames where a player needs three or four snookers to win. Now, of course, he only puts a link in in the email to the old De Winfield Masters in Australia. They did yeah. play it under the. They played it under the aggregate score format, so it's first to a many points. I think the only problem with this is, you know, you obviously have a have a match, and within a match, you have a set of frames which are in in some senses matches of their own and they have their own drama and their own narrative and if you're just playing first to say 500 points i think you lose that actually and and also if it's not close it's a bit like billiards it's not a great spectacle
2: maybe well they had that the power snooker we've not mentioned that in the podcast for a while. <laughs> they, they played that over aggregate points and time so i think the matches were 30 minutes and i remember one of the matches and a little bit of it that i watched I think it was Ronnie O'Sullivan against a very young Luca Purcell. And when I turned on, I think there were about 10 minutes to go, but O'Sullivan was so far in front that there was just no way back for Purcell. So then you're just knocking it around for 10 minutes then. And and equally so, if you have the format where you think, I think there had tournaments in the past where there was five frames <coughs> aggregate uh, score, again, someone can just get so far in front that you're starting the last frame. You could be 200 points behind. So the match is over and you're just playing out a dead frame. So, You've, you've got to have the narrative to the match, and you know that's what's made snooker that you have these this endless succession of climaxes to frames, and that's what builds up the story of the match. I, I don't have any great appetite for, for aggregate scores. Uh, I think they used it in pot black time frame as well. Uh, another uh, uh, unlamented. Innovation that was tried over the years. Well, not not by Neil not Folds. He won it. Well, absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed, that, that's true. Uh, I think that was Ronnie's first match as a pro on TV. Was in time frame mm. as well. He beat Steve Davis on the aggregate points. But now nah, I think it's been tried, and if it had been a good format that worked, then it would have lasted. And it didn't really. Uh, I think that that kind of tells you all you need to know about that.
1: Okay. Well, uh, the final email, and this is a corker actually. Uh, this is really great email from Jero Walman. And he writes, I first discovered snooker in the fall of 1981. The fact he says fall is a clue as to where he's from. Absolutely, when I, yeah. when I was on a study abroad program through the University of Minnesota Duluth in Birmingham, England. I was living at Furcroft College and was fascinated by the game itself and the newspaper coverage of Alex Higgins. Remember, this is 1981. Mm. After, retur- after returning to the United States, I pretty much forgot about snooker for 30 years until I, ca- until I came across live videos on the Internet. Within a few weeks of research in 2012, Mark Selby became my favourite player. In the spring of 2014, my nine-year-old daughter, Veronica, asked me for an iPod. I told her she could have one when if Mark Selby won the World Championships. She complained, but Dad, Mark Selby is never going to win the World Championship. It wasn't long until Mark Selby made us all very happy. I also became intrigued with Herman Arderland's snooker.org and eventprediction.com after pestering Herman to have more frequent updating of the prediction contest scores. He offered me the job... I've been doing that for him for many years now. He says he loves the podcast. How about that's so an Email from Minnesota. I mean, that, that is something, isn't it? That's fantastic.
2: Yeah.
1: And the thing about that is, so he was living in Birmingham. Now, I mean, I live in Birmingham, and I'm pretty sure that area he was he was staying in is very close, about a mile from uh, Selly Oak, which is where Alex Higgins actually won the world championship in uh, 1972. So yeah. it's not not far away from uh, a bit of a bit of uh, a bit of snooker history itself, but uh, what a great email that is, and uh, if anyone else in America is listening, do let, us, <laughs> do let us know, because I, I get very um, excited, but for some reason, by Americans, so... Yeah. Uh, well,
2: the, the thing about it is, I mean, America is so vast, right, if mm. even 1% of the American population was yeah. get interested in snooker, that's three and a half million people, I mean, you even consider if 0.1% of the American population got interested in snooker. That's still a fairly significant number. So if it just got any kind of foothold at all, it, it could uh, it, it could really grow. Even if it could be, still be because America so big, you can be a real niche minority pursuit, but still have more people following it than you do in almost any other country in the world. So if it just got some sort of foothold, there was supposed to be a tournament in America back in 1987 when the mm. World Series was launched. There was going to be a U.S. Masters in Las Vegas the week before Christmas. Can you imagine the stories that would have come back from that? We'd still be talking about it now. (laughs) But it never happened for one reason or another. And uh, we still await the the breakthrough. And perhaps it's not going to come. I mean, you know, pool is obviously a very big game in America, probably bigger, actually, than we realize over here. Uh, And it's so well established now that I'm not really sure Snooker could ever really take off. But like I say, if it just got a bit of a foothold, if there was even one good player who emerged, then who knows what might happen?
1: Well, you mentioned you used the phrase there, niche minority pursuit, which which brings me to my excellent billiards joke on Twitter earlier, which, which you probably will not seen because you're not on Twitter. Right. So, so and, you know, in a self-regarding way, I'm going to tell it again. Um, yeah. So, so there's a story. Will Stooker, have done a story about Matt Damon has had a table oh, yeah. installed? Yeah, you saw that he's got a table installed, a snooker table, and I so I in, in Ireland. So I said, actually, I think you'll find Matt Damon is uh, is looking for a billiards coach. He's martin goodwill hunting oh uh,
2: no oh, oh no, no. no. So how many hours did you spend trying to contrive <laughs> this
1: this from the man who did the mike russell joke a few so weeks ago yeah, yeah.
2: anyway anyway we're, we're, we're becoming the, the the go-to podcast for niche billiards jokes i mean everyone's you, aspired to be that at some point but you'll probably you'll probably find they probably find there's a rival one he's getting really angry that he's not getting any heat yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is actually called niche billiards joke.
1: Yeah, by the way, Martin Goodwill, for those who don't know, is a Billiards coach. Anyway, enough enough of this. Um, Just before we carry on, I want to say as well, uh, congratulations to Jason Ferguson this week, who celebrated 10 years of WPSA chairman, an immensely uh, passionate, hardworking, professional person, Jason, always well turned out. You see him often in the front row in the Chinese finals in his suit. Best chairman the WPSA's WP's, P- P- ever had, for sure. Of course, the roles changed, and under in, in the old system, they were trying to do everything. They were commercial body, players' body, rules and regulatory. That's all been split apart. The commercial side is under Barry Hearn's wing, and Jason can get on with all the all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, he's worked very, very hard, and and he's actually appreciated, which is nice to see. You hear players say, uh, you know, we, we've got the right guy.
2: It's uh, He must be finding the current restrictions particularly hard because, as we know, handshakes aren't really the dumb mm. thing at the moment. Jason has probably shaken more hands than anybody else in the world in those 10 years. Um, <laughs> he's ideal for that job. We've said it so many times. I think when he had it before, when it was the old form of the WPBSA, I think it overwhelmed him a little bit. But he's yeah. ideal yeah. for it now in this role. And. So ten years is quite an achievement in, in snooker to last in any role for that long, and another seventeen years will be the longest-serving Ferguson in, in British sports history, overtaking. Lots.
1: <laughs> Very good. Uh Briefly, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but the this, this sort of af- after the top ten greatest players th- this week, people have been talking about the best players never to be world champion, mm. and there was an interesting. I, I had this little back and forth yesterday with one of my friends on, on the old WhatsApp, and uh, he was put in Ding's case. He said, "Oh no, Ding's ahead of." jimmy and matthew stevens and i didn't agree i put jimmy number one on that list and matthew stevens two and ding three and the the reason is very simple what year should ding have won the world championship that he didn't win it jimmy you can definitely say 92 and 94 you know you can say definitely should have won it then i would say matthew stevens the year 2000 he was 13 7 up um 2005 he was also in front although murphy played great the second day but what year should ding have won it that he didn't win it i mean he's a great player obviously and a lot of people may be surprised he hasn't won it by now but he's only been in one final. He wouldn't have been necessarily favourite to win that. He was playing Mark Selby. So what year should Dinger won the world championship that he didn't?
2: I suppose it depends how you look at it. Are you assessing it on the basis of someone's world championship record? Or mm. are you basing it on how good a player they were overall? And if you're basing it on your world championship record, then I mean you can't disagree at all with that. Jimmy, number one, clearly. And then Matthew, number two. I mean, th- there was an extraordinary start about Matthew. Around about 2008, I think it was. He had won more matches at the Crucible that decade than any other player. Now, he was eventually overtaken by the end of that decade. But it's remarkable to be in that position so near the end of the decade without actually having won it so talented and so well-suited to that long format. And he just always seemed to shine at the Crucible, even if he hadn't had a great season. Very often, he went there and hardly won a match all season and did really well.
1: Yeah, well, he's sort of the the modern version of that now is Barry Hawkins, isn't it? He's sort of taken taken on that mantle of always having a good world championship.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And again, there have been times he's gone there having not had uh, the greatest of seasons at all. And the irony is, of course, Barry for a long time seemed to struggle at the Crucible. Uh, but then once he did have one good year, it seems to have happened again and again and again. I mean, in terms of Barry ever winning it, I think we both said in 2018 that when he lost that semifinal, mm. that may be his best chance gone. Um, and we probably, I think, said that about Matthew Stevens after losing the 2005 (laughs) final. So we shall see, but uh, certainly time's running out for Barry. But, yeah, I I think if you are assessing it on World Championship record, it has to be number one Jimmy, number two Matthew. But if you're looking at it in terms of who was the best player overall in terms of the career, who didn't manage to produce it at the Crucible, then I suppose Ding's in the conversation. But I'd still put Jimmy ahead of him, even on that basis, to be honest.
1: Absolutely. Okay. well, anyway, that's an argument that we'll... I'm not going to say rage and rage, but we'll we'll simmer, simmer maybe. Anyway, the big yeah. news, the big the, the big news is that Super is coming back. Yeah. Um Now the earliest sport can start in the UK is June the first, and Barry Hearn, not one to sort of lounge around doing nothing, has got the Championship League kind of rebadged in a different, slightly different version with more players. So the Championship League's been going since 2008. It's usually seven players in a group, seven groups, and then a final winners group. This is going to be 64 players, um, 16 initial groups, and then three final groups. So 11 days. And the it was announced it's going to be shown on ITV and also a a second table is going to be streamed. Now the players were sent an 11-page health and safety document which I've read a player sent it to me and it's about as comprehensive a document as it's possible to have in terms of in terms of the health health and safety aspect. It's almost a model for a sporting event. Obviously, not every sport is like snooker and, and not it's not going to apply to every sport. We're indoors. It's a relatively small controllable environment. But the point is this, okay, so it's going to be played at a venue with a hotel on site. Um, Everyone will be tested before they enter the building. Obviously, if you test negative, you can come into the building. No one is then allowed to leave until, if you're a player, you're knocked out or if you're working on the event, the event's over and your your time is up. It would be safer in that building than being in the supermarket. You know, you ran me on Saturday to talk about it. I was in Tesco Mm. where there's there's people roaming around not being tested, picking up items, putting them back again. Um, So, A lot of work has gone into this and look, you know, we've given stip to the governing body on various things. This is an excellent document and it's a way of getting snooker back that is controllable and actually can show the world that we can, that we can play safely, which then of course means when the world championship comes along, we've already done it. We've already proved that we can do it.
2: Yeah. I think that's a big part of the reason this is happening is to do a sort of trial run. But we said last week, you know, if, if it was even being talked about that something like football could come back, then surely, There was a way they could get snooker on. And so it proved a few days later when we heard that story over the weekend that Mm. the Championship League was going to be coming on. And they've clearly given it a huge amount of thought. Um, They've got a medical officer on board who I know has a huge amount of clout. And I think that probably helped them get this through. And, uh, yeah, good luck to them. I mean, I think it'll be absolutely fine. It's obviously going to be very strange in very many ways. Uh, but absolute credit to them for, for making it happen because th- they didn't need to make it happen you, you know th- 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 this was the thing. They could very easily have just made the excuses and they would have been pretty valid excuses as well but that's not how Barry operates as we know and um, he was absolutely itching to get something on and as you say that's underlined by the fact that it will be starting on the 1st of June which is the first day that, that it will be legally possible to do it and what a run it's going to have now because there'll be nothing else up and running by then so there'll be a huge amount of attention on it when it does start
1: i wondered you know how many players they would get they needed 64 i wondered if they could get that many i'm told that, that, that they have. Um, I've got to be slightly careful because we're recording this on Wednesday. It'll be out on Thursday. In the meantime, there may have been announcements. So I think there is a press release being prepared about who's in it. But I can tell you, there are some big names in this event, um, yeah. and, they, and they've got enough players to play in it. And I'll say this as well: not everyone's going to play in it. I'm not going to criticise anyone who doesn't enter it, and I'm not going to criticise anyone who does. It's a personal choice. It's £30,000 first prize. A lot of players have been itching to get back playing, and there's a financial imperative for players lower down the ranking list. There are some players who are, of course outside britain may not want to travel because it's more risk involved and that's fine although i suppose in a way it does underline again the slight British bias in the game, you know, you are at an advantage, definitely, if, if you're UK-based. But there are some players who never left. I think there's some Chinese players who, who never left because they were waiting on the, the Tour Championship, the World Championship. Um, but, you know, I think the, the the industry that's gone into putting this together, and it's not just Barry; it's the whole team there, at WST. has got to be applauded. And let's hope it all passes off safely. Obviously, you know, it's not the World Championship. Championship League has always had this sort of, Bit of an easy relationship with certain snooker fans because it's all it's always been behind closed doors. Um, but you know, th- these guys will be trying. They're, they've been kicking their heels all these weeks, and it's a chance to just play snooker, watch snooker, get the sport up and running again.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? It's been reported as well that the first prize, the winner will get twenty thousand pounds. Well. It'll be more than that because if you win your first phase group, I think that's four thousand yeah, pounds. It's thirty altogether, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if you win your second phase group, that's another six and then twenty. That makes thirty. It's not that long ago. That was actually the first prize for a lot of full-scale week-long mm. ranking events. And you know, in more recent years we've seen some of the smaller ranking events with maybe first prizes of twenty-five thousand or whatever. So it's pretty substantial, really. It's well worth winning. Then if you are intending to play in the World Championship later in the summer, which I think looks increasingly likely to happen now, well, I mean, you've got to get some matches under your belt because otherwise it could be months and months since you've played. So uh, I'm not surprised at all, actually, that there's been such a big take-up. And as you say, some very big names have lined up for it.
1: Yeah. And also, you know, if ITV are prepared to show 11 days of it, that's a huge yeah. um, vote of confidence in the sport from their point of view as well. So it starts on June the 1st and there'll be more details. Um, the venue that was named in the uh, in the initial letter, I think is not going to be the venue, but... Um, this, this, this may all come out by the time the podcast is out. So uh, look out for that. We look forward to that. In the meantime, we move on to our main topic of the day, snooker rivalries. And this, this was sparked, I guess, by um, – I was talking about the uh, John Spencer book a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and his rivalry with Ray Riordan. So I've picked out a few rivalries. Now, it's important to say at the start, I don't mean grudge matches. There's been plenty of matches between players who can't stand each other. Recently, Mark Allen and Mark Joyce had this big beef that sort of spilled over, although it seemed mainly to be Mark Allen who had the beef. It's not about players who have got on. It's about top-level rivalries. So we're talking here about champions at the top of their sport and how their rivalries developed and how they sort of shaped different eras of the game. So let's start with Reardon and Spencer. And for all of these, all of these matchups, I've gone to Q tracker to get their head to head. So head to head Reardon Spencer, is pretty much what you would think it'd be very close. 27, 25 to Reardon, never played in the world championship final. Um, but Reardon won five of the seven meetings in the World Championship itself, and it's clear from Spencer's book they were different people. Reardon had uh, a particular way about him that seemed to, to grate with Spencer, and I think Reardon quite liked that. He liked having an edge over, over his great rival. P- people talk about Alex Higgins in the 70s, but these two, they won every World Championship basically from 1969 to 1978, bar the 72 Championship that Alex won.
2: Yeah. Well, wasn't there a year, actually? I think it was the year the it was played in Australia. Mm. Uh, in the early 70s and they they clearly were the two best players in it but the way that the seeding was done I think they were seeded to meet um, in the quarter finals well, I don't know what, what how they managed to work that one out um, probably to get Eddie in the final well, well I think they may well I didn't want to say that but you have yeah. said it for me so, so thanks for that so but well, he can't sue, that. Can't sue us. <laughs> what's that? he yeah, can't no, sue us can yeah. he? Well, as we know, snooker players of that era can go up the rankings after the yes. Eddie himself. <laughs> yes. But, um, yeah, I mean, it is surprising that they never met in a world final. They they both probably, you know, would have liked to have uh, come along a little bit later, but they, they both also remained fairly competitive into the 80s, Reardon more so than Spencer. Reardon was still in the top 16, well into his 50s. I think he would have been about 54, 55 when he finally dropped out of the top 16 in 1987, Spencer dropped out of it a couple of years before that, the following season, now there were only six ranking events at that time, but Steve Davis only lost two ranking event matches the hmm. season after that. One of them was to Stephen Hendry, who was only 18 at the time. The other one was against Ray Reardon, who beat him 5-0 in the British Open. I mean, what a result that was. It didn't sort of mark a new era for him or anything, getting back as one of the top players. He didn't really build it. And indeed, he bowed out of the circuit a few years later. But he had lasted a really, really long time. And Spencer as well. I mean, he, he fell away from the uh, towards the top of the rankings a few years before Reardon. But again, he was in the quarterfinals of the British Open in 87. Gave Jimmy White a very good match. Jimmy went on to win the title. And the following year, that same British Open that Reardon beat Davis 5-0, Spencer had a 5-0 win over Dennis Taylor. Um, That's right. Yeah, so, so they both stayed around for, for quite some time. And Spencer may, in fact, he almost certainly would have lasted longer. As a, as a leading player, had it not been for all sorts of health issues. He had uh, problems with his eyesight that uh, re- really impacted on him. And, and then after he finished playing, I think his health problems and, and his mental health and his eyesight always deteriorated more and more. Um, so he, he's long since departed. Now I think it's about 15 years almost since John died. But mm. Ray Reardon's still going strong. And of course, he's turned up at the Welsh Open a few times to present the trophy in recent years. And it's great to see him there because we spoke about him last week. He really was the first superstar really the first dominant figure as it were of snooker's tv age albeit that that tv age really only uh caught the back end of his his reign yeah and uh
1: their rivalry i think sort of shapes this whole if you want to be grand and call it a series because they were different people and i think that's what makes interesting rivals and the next one certainly is an example of that Steve Davis Alex Higgins now (laughs) you couldn't get too much more different people Steve the absolutely ultimate dedicated professional and Alex the firebrand the volatile one the thing about this is people maybe not don't realize as as an actual playing rivalry incredibly one-sided in favor of Davis 25-5 on the Q tracker stats Higgins only actually beat him once in a ranking event that was the world championship 1980 but you think When you think of that era, early 80s, they are, I guess, the two players that leap out.
2: Yeah, it's been a misconception about that, that, you know, it was neck and neck, really, and sometimes Steve would win, sometimes Alex would win. If you actually asked a lot of people to name one time that Steve Davis beat Alex Higgins, they might struggle. But everyone hmm. can tell you a few times that Alex won. Obviously, the 83 UK final, 7-0 down, remarkable, to come back and win it. Most people will also remember the first round of the Masters in 85. Now, the thing is, if Steve had won that match, Probably nobody would really remember it much now. It was only the fact that it was such a rare thing for Alex to beat him. Uh, Particularly up until then, he'd only beaten him a couple of times. They actually met again only about two months later in the Irish Masters in the semi-final. And Alex won quite comfortably that time, in fact. Uh, But that was it after that. I think they played about another 10 times or so. I think the last match they ever had against each other, and I came across it on YouTube recently, um, because I'd forgotten about it, was the old Matchroom League. Uh, about 1920, mm. And it was a really good match. They both had a couple of centuries and it finished in a draw. So Higgins almost beat him. Uh, and that would have been quite a way to finish the rivalry for him to have had the last word. The, the other match I remember from that rivalry was when they played at the British Open a tournament. We seem to keep coming back to today in 89. And that was when Alex had just had his fall out of the window. And, he, <laughs> you know, when he wins the Irish Masters, he's more limping around the table. But in Derby for that British Open, he was properly full on hopping around. It only lasted five frames because he had no chance of beating Steve Davis hopping around the table like that. He must have been absolutely exhausted at the end of it. So that's one of the matches I remember. But yeah, there was never a point where you would have said Alex was Steve's closest challenger during Steve's reign as the best player in the game. You could maybe have made a case for it after he won the World Championship in 82. But even then, I still think you would have reckoned that Terry Griffiths was probably Steve's closest challenger. So as you alluded to there, a bit of a misconception about it in terms of the uh, how level the rivalry was but it doesn't take away from the fact that whenever they did meet in those days which was quite often there was an extra edge to it because as you say the huge clash in stars between them and the fact that they both had very big followings very different types of followings because of well, the yeah. types of people they
1: were. Well that's the point it's what it what they represented. Davis represented the establishment and Higgins represented the anti-establishment and a lot of his fans you know he was the people's champion and a lot of his fans were the sort of classically working class who Felt with some justification that the system had kind of been rigged against them from the day they were born, they, and we, you know we see now our, our politicians sort of coming through this sort of gilded, you know, public school Oxbridge sort of life and, and becoming you know running the country basically a lot of people obviously don't have that and they've seen Alex Siggins someone who had very little when he was young but made something of himself of course the irony of all that is Steve Davis was the same Steve wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth by any means mm. he's from an, he's from an ordinary working class background as well but he represented the establishment and Higgins represented the opposite and of course the UK final that wasn't a ranking event then that's why um yeah that, that 83 that doesn't count as a, as a ranking event but that's Alex's most, most famous win over Steve. But I think I'm right in saying because the rag pack, which a few years ago on, on the BBC, the, the drama about that time, was basically about Davison and Higgins. And I don't think that that was even in that uh, drama, which, which surprises me. Um, you're right, yeah. yeah. Um, what was in it, though, um, was a uh, scene entirely, entirely invented where um, Alex Higgins, famously in 1990 when he lost to Steve James, sat in the arena, refused to move um, for quite a time. In, now, what happened in reality is he then eventually someone came and got him, and, and I think he, he punched someone and did a press conference. Um, in the drama, Steve Davis goes out and sort of coaxes him out of the arena. I mean, I'm listen. I, I write plays. I, I understand that how drama works it doesn't have to be true it has to be emotionally true except that wasn't steve davis would not have done that they didn't like each other in fact steve was scared of him he admits that openly um and you know and that's again is is what makes a great rivalry because you could not watch one of their matches and not support one or the other you were either for davis or you were for higgins and steve had a lot of more supporters than people remember but he didn't have as many as alex yeah
2: and and in that scene doesn't steve say i think Alex says, Oh, you hated you always hated me, Steve. And Steve says I didn't hate you. I idolized you or you were my mm-hmm. hero or something. There's no way that was ever true. <laughs> so uh you know, far from it in fact. I think you know Alex would have to, to a young Steve growing up, Alex would have been an example of what not to do and how not to conduct yourself and your career. So they were certainly uh twisting things there. Although I, I did think that was an excellent, very enjoyable movie when it was shown probably about four Brilliant. years ago now, I think it was.
1: The guy playing Barry Hearn was, was fantastic. Yeah. Actually, the guy playing Steve was really good as well. Anyway, uh, staying – so our next one, staying with Steve, this, again, uh, a meeting of two all-time greats who never played in a world final, sadly, Steve Davis and Stephen Hendry. Yeah. Um, straddling eras and all that. I mean, we've talked about these guys a lot. We talked about them on the on the Greatest uh, podcast last week. The head-to-head favoured uh, Hendry 44-20. Um, of course, Hendry – modelled himself on Steve Davis, not as a player, but as, the, as how to be a professional and, ch- and a champion. He watched how Davis did it, the way he kept himself apart from other players um, and how he sort of carried himself. Uh, Stephen, of course, played a different game. Like I say, they never played in a world final. They played in a couple of semi-finals. Steve won in 89, Hendry in 94, when Steve actually had a chance to get back to world number one. Yes. And, and Davis, having set incredible standards, then saw Hendry come along and raise them even further.
2: Yeah, we all thought they were going to meet in the final in 1990, which would have been incredible because obviously Davis had won the World Championship so many times. Henry hadn't even been in the final before. And indeed, Davis had won it three years in a row prior to that. So clearly then this would have been henry's chance to directly dethrone davis as world champion but also the world number one ranking would have been on the line and that was at a time when the rankings only changed once a year Mm. so just imagine how much there would have been on that and i think we all expected steve to beat jimmy in the semi-final particularly when he got off to a good start uh but jimmy obviously just grew in strength as the match went on and came through in a close finish so we were denied that but it's funny you know we talk about this as a rivalry and yet You know, you think with these rivalries, it's contrasting personalities in all of these cases and guys who didn't get on. Well, I mean, it couldn't be further from the truth here. These two have been great friends for many for many years. They've always got on very well and very, very similar in their in their personalities and their approach. And now, of course, they sit together in the BBC studio a lot. But it it was a great time that just to see, you know, we we all knew Henry had the potential to overtake Davis. But how quickly was it going to happen? Would there be any sort of response from Steve? And indeed, there was actually, because Steve hung around as the closest challenger to to Henry for maybe four or five years after he was overtaken. But there was never any doubt after 1990, really, that Henry was the best player. And uh, not only that, it it wasn't just a case that he was better than Steve at that time. It was pretty clear throughout the 90s that Henry was better than Davis had been during the 80s. And I don't think that was anything, uh, something that anyone really expected to see from anyone.
1: They do get on you, right. And and recently, uh, Steve Davis during the UK Championship, because of course he's now a DJ, he did a gig in York and invited the guys along, Stephen and Ken, and Stephen told me when they got there, Davis was there, I believe, as they say, on the decks and um, he had a Stephen Hendry mask on oh,
2: <laughs>
1: and H- Hendry immediately was looking for the door. But uh did well, yeah, you yeah.
2: even get such a thing? I mean, oh, just... the, the
1: Internet, I'm guessing. Yeah. I'm guessing you can get most things. Yeah. So but but between them, you know, you talk about dominant forces between them basically for two decades. They, they dominate the game. Shame they never played in a world final. Two UK finals they played in. Hendry won them both. He would have been favourite to win the world final. Not a certainty by any means. Would love to have seen it. I guess it's too late now. But what we did see, of course, many times was Stephen Hendry played Jimmy White in world finals. And this is our next rivalry. This, I suppose, is probably my age growing up, watching them, is possibly my favourite of them all um, in terms of rivalries. Jimmy, much loved character. Um, again, you know. Coming from tooting and being that working class background, having a certain following. We know he didn't do everything right off the table. He would be the first to admit that. Stephen Hendry, the, the ultimate pro, taken over from Davis in that way. Four World Finals, we always talk about, I was going to say we always talk about the World Finals. Actually, we normally only talk about two of them. We normally talk about the, the, the two I mentioned already in the podcast, 92, when. White was 14-8 up, Henry won the last 10 frames, and of course, 94, Jimmy missed the black in the decider, lost 18-17. The 1990 final was a terrific match. Average frame time, 12 minutes. You know, I mean, at that point, no one's seen anything like it. Hendry, of course, became youngest champion, and his favourite win was 93, which he won with a session to spare, 18-5. Jimmy had quite a few wins other than that over Hendry, but I guess that rivalry is definitely defined by the World Championship.
2: Yeah, much like Jimmy White's career, really, is, is defined yeah. by it. It was great times. I mean, it really was fantastic. We were both still in school in those days when they were playing those world finals. And, you know, you'd be in school the next morning and everyone would have watched it and yeah. everyone would have t- t- taken their view on it. I mean, I think I was always the only one I was more into snooker than anyone else in the class, but there were a lot of people into it as well. But I think I was the only one who had wanted Hendry to win and everyone else seemed to be a Jimmy fan. And it, it wasn't like anything against Jimmy because I loved watching him as well. And i would grown up watching him, but I was always a massive Henry fan. And, you know, he just completely dominated it. It's not like they had all those finals and White won one of them. I think that was really what made it. It was the fact that White just never got a look in. And, you know, you you look at 94 and the black that that, that Jimmy missed. I mean, would he have missed that had it not been for everything that had gone before? And the fact that Henry Hmm. had beaten him so many times and it had become this bigger and bigger psychological hurdle for him to overcome. And ultimately, I think it proved too great for him when he had his best chance to do it in 94
1: yeah the overall head-to-head uh, favours Hendry 36-19 Jimmy did beat him in, in a couple of other finals in fact uh, he won the world match play didn't he which actually was best of 35 um, yeah ironically. and
2: hammered him as well I mean he beat him really heavily and, and that was when Hendry was at his most dominant and then only a few weeks after that they met in the final of the mercantile mm. and it was very nearly 10-0 because Jimmy was 9-0 up after the first session he only needed one more frame going into the evening and I think Stephen won the first four that night but Surely you thought even he couldn't come back to win from there, albeit that a few weeks later, he won the Masters final 9-8 from 8-2 down against Mike Hallett. So Jimmy did have his days, but you look at all the wins that he did have against Stephen Hendry, and as you say, there were plenty of them. No question at all, as cliched as it sounds, that he would have traded every one of them to have won just one of those World Finals.
1: Well, here's the thing with Jimmy. Everyone loves Jimmy, quite rightly. but And I'm, by the way, I'm not a qualified psychologist. I'll just make that clear. But you could argue, actually, his great rivalry was with himself. It was with the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. Yeah. The, the, the go to bed early, Jimmy, or the come and have a drink, Jimmy. And no doubt, and he admits himself, he's written two books about it, his lifestyle had an effect. He was such a great player that he could get to World Finals despite not not following the rules. But, you know, he kept running up against great players, Stephen Hendry in particular. I think, there's, a, like you say, though, for, for people of a certain age, that rivalry is one that you remember. And also... There'd be a lot of Jimmy fans who would have hated Hendry at the time, who I think now will have got over the fact that it was him and just respect him for his for his own achievements. And Stephen Hendry is going to continue into the next rivalry, which is with another big hitter, Ronnie O'Sullivan, of course. Now, O'Sullivan uh, leads this one on the Q tracker stats 30 wins to 21. A lot of memorable meetings. It's worth saying, though, and this set tells you something about Ronnie. He played Hendry in the UK final 93. It was only his second season. He was only 17. He had every reason to be overawed by the occasion by his opponent. And he wasn't. He won 10-6. So that tells you something about him. Even though he obviously respected him and looked up to these great players he'd been watching, he wasn't scared of them.
2: Yeah, and they met again in another final only a couple of weeks later, the European Open. And I remember after Ronnie had won his semi-final, he was being interviewed. I think it may have even have been Phil who did the interview. And the question was basically, well, you've just beaten him in the UK final. Basically, what do you think is going to happen this time? And he said, without blinking at all, I think I'll beat him again. Mm. Um, but, you know, that, uh, that just underlines the attitude that he has. Now, he didn't beat him again. Actually, Henry beat him that time. But uh, so many meetings between them that had a little extra spice to them, the most obvious one, 2002, that I think we discussed in one of the recent podcasts. Where uh, Ronnie had made the big, big mistake Of stoking things up before the match I mean, you didn't need to give Stephen Hendry Any extra incentive, well, any extra motivation
1: Well, here's the thing about that, okay Because people, like so many things Kind of misremember misrem- mis- that People always say, Ronnie said I'll send him back to his sad little life yeah. Henry, didn't, Henry didn't care about that What annoyed Stephen, I know this for a fact is that O'Sullivan questioned his sportsmanship he said that he'd taken a miss in some match that wasn't a miss and he'd never forgiven him for it which was complete nonsense for a start but also you know you just don't do that against a player like Hendry who in a world final once refused to take a free ball in fact it won against Jimmy late on 94 refused to take a free ball because he didn't think it was one and that's what wound Hendry up the rest of it was all just trash talk people say well he was hanging around with Prince Nazim. well so what Hendry used to hang around with Prince Nazim. he never he never said that about anybody you know you know, Ronnie knew pretty quickly, probably, possibly even the same night, that he'd made a major mistake. Uh, because like you say, you don't have to find Henry went out there, was determined to beat him. I think he put so much into that that it affected him actually in the final. I don't think he had the same intensity against Edmonton. Um And it took a while for them to patch it up. I know for a fact that Henry blanked him for a while. Eventually, you know, because uh, time moves on, they did patch it up. They're friends again. But it was, uh, it was a, an explosive moment in the rivalry, I think it's fair to say.
2: I asked him after the match, I said, because none of us could remember the miss. You know, he he was referring to the 99 semi-final that we all remembered Mm -hmm. very well. And none of us could remember. What was this miss controversy? We don't remember any of this at all. I asked O'Sullivan about it after the match in 2002. And he said, oh, I think I think it was when it was about eight all or something. Now, I went back and (laughs) looked. I could see no record anywhere of this ever having happened. And, you know, the funny thing is. The next ranking event after that 99 World Championship, the one that O'Sullivan claims this incident happened in, was the British Open at the start of the following season. They played each other in the semi-final, And I clearly remember the two of them sitting in the press room in Plymouth before they went out to play, chatting away like the best of mates. So if he did have this big grievance, Ronnie, it certainly got over it pretty quickly. Uh, It was a huge mistake, but look, it was great for us at the time. It just added Mm. that little extra edge to it. As you say, it was all misquoted. He never said he was going to send him back to his sad little life. I think he said he was going to send him back to Scotland. And then there was some other mention about sad little life somewhere along the way. But very, very silly for him to do it. And uh, it just for a few years then just added a little more to their rivalries. But boy, did they have some great matches. I mean, it's like O'Sullivan and Higgins. Very rarely have, have O'Sullivan and Henry played each other. that It didn't turn out to be an absolute treat. Uh, and of course late on in his career Henry was given a couple of absolute thumpings Yeah. at the Crucible so uh, unlike some of the other rivalries we're talking about here they both had their day uh, they both had great moments to remember from the rivalry and uh, that's, that's what makes it I think one of the great rivalries that there's been in the game
1: yeah and I think Ronnie's one of the reasons that Hendry retired when he did. He retired eight years ago, and I think those, those hidings that he had, he just thought, okay, I can I can muddle along and get results, but I can't compete with him. He's just too good. Of course, interestingly, in a way, their rivalry is still going because Hendry's records are being sort of taken one by one by Ronnie O'Sullivan, and you know the centuries have gone. The level on ranking titles, the world titles at the moment still is with Stephen. I, I would say this. I mean, I think Stephen genuinely wants to have the records he wants to be the man with the records i think though if you said to him okay one player in the game can take them he would accept o'sullivan because he appreciates of course he does just what a great player he is
2: yeah well last year of course was 20 years since Stephen won his record seventh title and i did a couple of pieces surrounding it i did a piece for the magazine i did a piece for the world championship program so in order to get some material for those i sat down with Stephen in between sessions in the masters final last year And he said a couple of very interesting things. I said to him, you know, you've got this debate about who's the greatest. Do you think people, when they talk about that, have maybe forgotten just how good you were? And interestingly, he said, well, he had been looking back at some of his matches when he was researching for his autobiography that had come out a little earlier. And he said that um, he maybe felt that even he had forgotten how good he was. (laughs) And and I think that's the case for a lot of people. You, You look back at some of the performances Henry produced over the years. But then I did ask him as well. I said, look, there is still this possibility because Ronnie is only two behind you. He's still playing and you're not. What do you think would happen if he caught you? How would you feel about that? And it was great because what he said was, I'd be devastated.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: I, I said to him straight away, I said, you know, what, a lot of people wouldn't admit that. And I didn't mean that as a criticism. I thought it was actually quite refreshing that he was as open and honest about that. He was so consumed almost with that record for some time. He spoke about it very openly. He perhaps put a little extra pressure on himself by speaking so publicly about how he wanted to get to that crucible record of seven titles. Now, if you've devoted yourself to claiming that record for so many years and put so much into it, why on earth would you be anything other than greatly disappointed if somebody else came along and took the record off you? Although, of course, the way things have developed in recent years, the chances of O'Sullivan actually doing that now are diminishing greatly as time goes on.
1: Yeah, my final word on Henry O'Sullivan, whenever they played, it was always a proper match. It was a proper snooker match that you could enjoy. Whoever you were supporting, you knew it would be played the right way and and invariably of the highest quality. I'm going to gloss over uh, O'Sullivan, John Higgins, for 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 this simple reason, really. Um... They're very kind of close together in terms of their record, their achievements, but also they're close as people. There's no actual rivalry between them as people. In fact, they, right. fall, over, they fall over themselves to say nice things about each other. And sometimes when they play each other, certainly in recent years, actually it doesn't live up to the billing. They're almost trying too hard and showing too much respect. Both great players. Um, but I'm going to move on to a more sort of piquant uh, rivalry, if you like, and that's O'Sullivan against Mark Selby. Because here we have, again, in the classic mould of this kind of series, very different people and actually very different players, both great players, but in different ways. And let's be clear. O'Sullivan is the better player of the two. He just is. But Mark Selby has had a way over the years getting under his skin. Last, last week I had my triple crown rant, but I'm going to be a hypocrite. I'm going to be a hypocrite here. Mark Selby, one of his achievements is he's the only player to have beaten O'Sullivan in all three triple crown finals.
2: Yeah. Well, Um, yeah well there's no there's no no dispute with that Mm. one of the things that's interesting about this is that uh, quite early on when Selby became one of the top players he actually met O'Sullivan in a lot of big matches very quickly after becoming a leading player and had a very good record against him clearly got to him in the Welsh Open final when he won his first ranking title and I think that was the match where Ronnie started counting the dots on his spoon or Mm. something like that Um. But I think Ronnie got it into his head that Selby was going out of his way to throw Ronnie out of his rhythm. Now, then when Ronnie started doing some of the TV work, he said that he was actually watching a lot more snooker now, as obviously you do when you're sitting in the studio. And he realized that was just the way Selby played yeah. against everyone when yeah. uh, certainly, you know, when the circumstances needed. it. And I think that, that helped him, um, you know, get, get that out of his head that Selby had it in from. Because I think you know Ronnie's actually a very sensitive person in a lot of ways, and I don't think he would like the idea that he was being singled out for special attention, even though, in a sense, is a tribute to him. But the significance of this rivalry, as we've said so often, is the impact of what is by far and away Selby's most famous and significant win over O'Sullivan, indeed the most significant win of his career, because it was when he became world champion for the first time in 2014, having come from so far behind, and look at what's happened to O'Sullivan at the Crucible since. I would be willing to suggest that if... O'Sullivan had held on to win that final as it looked like he was going to when he built the big lead. Chances are, more likely than not, he would at least have caught Henry Seven by now. Yeah. So that's yeah. why it's a hugely significant rivalry for O'Sullivan. And that was a hugely significant defeat. Definitely. I mean, I've said this before, but I think it
1: bears repeating that definitely planted the seed in Ronnie's mind that the World Championship is just too much of a slog. He was the best player for 16 days and he lost on the 17th. Mm. And so, you know, you you've, you've basically you've spent three weeks climbing the mountain, over to be overtaken at the last minute. And, of course, the other thing with Selby, and it it feeds back to what I said about O'Sullivan Hendry, Selby was never overawed by playing Ronnie O'Sullivan. A lot of players, including top players, still are overawed playing Ronnie. Mox Selby's character, for whatever reason, and I think you can look into his background and just the fact that he's happy to be playing snooker full stop, he he was never bothered playing Ronnie. And, in fact, he he seemed to enjoy... They've had a lot of close matches at the Masters and other places. He seemed to enjoy all that, which, of course is an advantage because it means you're not thinking about who you're playing. You're just thinking about playing.
2: Yeah, and I mean, he, he grew up with O'Sullivan. I mean, when O'Sullivan won the world champion, sorry the UK Championship for the first time in '93, Mark Selby, I think, was only 10 years of age. Mm. So he really grew up watching Ronnie, and it must be such a, a thrill to him to have found himself, uh, you know, maybe sort of 15 years later, sharing the big arenas and the big stages with him. And, you know, when you've come from, as you say, where Mark Selby had, had come from, to find himself in that situation it must have been felt like he'd climbed a massive mountain in itself. So yeah, he he always relished it, and I think once he knew he'd got under O'Sullivan's skin, he, he certainly did didn't do anything to uh, you know to to try to quell that notion as it were, and uh, and it served him well.
1: Yeah, and it's a fascinating clash of, of the way to play the game. We know how Ronnie plays. Mark Selby can certainly score heavily. He can also be a great tactician, and a lot of snooker fans enjoy that. A lot of snooker fans admire the sort of the grinding mode it's just a fascinating matchup and of course continues at top level the uh head-to-head there by the way 1810 to ronnie o'sullivan final one i'm going to mention really because it's been this season's great is judd trump neil robertson mm. now this is a, i think this is a friendlier one than than some of the others um and here's the thing with these two. I mentioned Sullivan Higgins sometimes doesn't always live up to the billing. It seems to me that Rob- Robertson and Trump always seem to bring the best out in one another. Their matches always seem to be good. I remember they played in the Masters 2016 quarterfinals. Yeah. That's six centuries in, in that match. Obviously, the Champions-to-Champions final, which I chose on a podcast a few weeks ago as one of yes. the greatest matches ever played. Um, I guess there's a kind of similar style there. Two left-handers, two great long potters, and... They've developed into great all-round players. They played in the German Masters final this season, which was actually a very tactical match. It was the other side of the way they play. But it just seems, they all, it's almost like they decide before they go out, this is going to be a great match. And it usually is.
2: Yeah, enormous respect between them, which I know sounds like a bit of a cliche, but it is absolutely true. I, rem- I remember Neil came out with a great quote about George back in the days when you had all the PTC events. And Neil was a much, much more established player than Judd at that stage. And he said, yeah, you can tell he's really going to make it because he's not one of these guys who goes to the ptc's treats them like a stag weekend and then complains about expenses
0: um,
2: you know, so um yeah i mean the great thing about that is you, you sense that there are many more years of that to come actually because they are the two best players in the world at the moment certainly according to the world rankings and certainly according to current form uh, such as it is at the moment and uh, neil's a lot older i think it's about eight years in the difference between them seven or eight years something like that but they're both still clearly going to be around at the highest level in all probability for at least another five or six years. So uh, probably a lot more to come from this one and uh, perhaps a, a world final between them at some stage. You would have to think there's a very good chance. Maybe even this year if it happens, because there'll be the uh, numbers one and two seeds. So, uh, yeah, a lot a lot more to come from that one, I think. And of course, it was um, it was Judd who ended Neil's one and only reign as world champion with that first round win back in 2011, from which he kicked on to to get to the final and went on that fantastic run, one of those instances of a world championship that was remembered more for the runner-up than it was for the winner.
1: Trump, of course, yeah, can, can actually beat Robertson's uh, centuries tally for the season. He's on 97. This has kind of been forgotten. And I tell you what, if he plays in this championship league, yeah. he's, I mean, because he, he, he's the mate. he's won that three times that event. If the short format suits him, he'd probably beat it there. Um, but that's a little little record he can take from from Neil. I seem to remember, oh, by the way, you said about the, the top two seeds Last time, about the only time the top two Cs have played in a world final was 1987, Joe Joe, Joe Johnson and Steve Davis. So we know at the Crucible things don't always go go to plan, but it'd be great if they did. I mean, it'd be a great match. Um, The only sort of slight aggro I can remember between them, I think it was the Masters one year, and Trump was very kind of um, very much on Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff. And I think Neil said something along the lines of, why doesn't he just be himself? Why try and create an image? And I remember the press then, as is our job in the media, attempted to sort of build this rivalry, which wasn't really there because the two of them are good friends. Simple as that. Um, and that's nice, I think, actually. You know, we often talk about, always oh, we, we need more aggro in the sport. I don't think we need confected aggro. If people don't get on and they explain why, fine. We don't need people to sort of... Like wrestling or something, you know, pretend to hate each other. Why can't you just sit back in a in a matchup like this and admire the quality of the snooker? Because these are two, for me, of the greatest players ever.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. We both put them comfortably inside our Mm. all-time top 10 uh, when we did it last week. It is true about Jordan. I mean, I I think when he came along, he was so young and he he liked the kind of the flashy image and the fast cars and everything. And I think he's still into that to some extent. But the big difference in him in recent years is he's realized more and more it's all about the snooker. It's all about what happens on the table and it's not about the peripheral stuff. So maybe what Neil said years ago actually sank in with him a bit. And uh, Neil maybe regrets it now from that point (laughs) of view because... Because Jude has gone on to become such a great player, but uh, yeah, this is this is the one of these rivalries that we've talked about that I, I think there's still going to be a lot more to uh, to come from it in, in times to come.
1: May even be at the Championship League. Well, that let us know what what you think about any of that. You can email us snooker scene podcast at mail.com, dot com. Snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. I've still got a few emails from a couple of weeks ago that I'm storing up for future topics, so we're not ignoring you. Um, they will be. We'll get to them in due course. Now, then, I actually because this is meticulously planned this podcast. And I've actually forgotten to choose a snooker book this week. Um, it, so if, if, unless you've got one, hand that, that, that you want to talk about.
2: I'm surrounded by them here. You might remember mm. last week. I, yeah. I just happened to be, to be sitting here next to uh, the, the big row of books that we've got. Mm. So just looking at them here, um, why don't we mention Clive's great book, Black Forest mm. and Tubal yes. Wizards? Yes. Because, <laughs> you know, we, we mentioned last week Pocket Money, that it gave such a great snapshot of snooker at that time well clive gives you a snapshot of snooker basically from when it began right up to when the book came out and with the updated edition i think that was about seven or eight years ago as, as he said himself he, he found it amazing that he got a publisher to take it on a book that's essentially about snooker politics which is such a niche thing but it, it's fantastic the way he weaves it all together uh, he's got the story of all the game's great players where they came from what they achieved why it all went wrong for some of them in the end he combines that then with his own story and then the story of how the game developed how it became such a big thing and then also obviously all the politics that came along and how that was ultimately resolved because certainly in the updated edition uh, it's got to the point where barry hearn has taken over the game so it's an absolutely magnificent history of snooker both on and off the table and um you know just every bit as well written and compiled as you would expect of clive so Black Forest and Ball Wizards—I think it was nominated for Sports Book of the Year, mm. which is remarkable when you consider, you know, it's it's not about a particular player; it's not a player's biography. Um, so yeah, that that's the one that I would uh, I would certainly recommend to anyone. And just some amazing stories in there. Some of the things that went on in the game um, well you know, if people don't know about them, they just find it remarkable that the game survived some of the things. There's some fantastic lines in there. I think my favourite one is when Clive won. I think it was Billiards Championship or something and he said in a field of varying quality I beat Long John Baldry's pianist in the first round, Steve Davis in the final just fantastic and the book is absolutely full of wonderful wonderful lines and great writing anyone who's got any interest in the game get, get, get hold of it now uh, just uh, just a wonderful history of the game uh, in all its aspects
1: no a fantastic book and here's I mean Clive doesn't need me to praise him by any means but we often think about Clive understandably as a commentator but I think this I think is just factually true he's the best writer on snooker there's ever been he just is his writing is fantastic and not only the just the the ability to with the turn of phrase that you mentioned but also he's always kind of kept a slight distance from players he hasn't tried to be pals with everybody or been in bars late at night and getting mixed up in that scene he's kept a distance so that he can be objective I guess and this book obviously it gets he's involved in it a lot in terms of some of the struggles over the years but it is a great overview particularly if you're new to snooker how we've got to this stage and frankly how lucky we are to have got to this stage and a lot of that is down to clive himself of course and he's campaigning over the years yeah. i agree it's, it's a fantastic book and uh, clive has written many, many others as well but that's of course is kind of his well it's sort of part autobiography of him and part autobiography i guess of snooker so blackfast and cueball wizards avail- available from usual sources.
2: Yeah, just a couple of things to say about that. I think the reason Clive wasn't hanging around in bars is because they don't usually serve pints of lime cordial, (laughs) which uh, which is his tipple. And I asked him once, actually, it's funny you should say that, because I did ask him once, would you say there are any players you've actually become friends with? Now, he'd be on very, very good terms with a lot of players. And one thing he mentions in the book is that Steve Davis invited him to his hotel room in Hong Kong uh, to explain (laughs) to him the technical reasons as to uh, why his game had maybe gone off the boil a little bit. And mm. Steve's not Clive's game, by the way.
1: And that just shows
2: the, uh, the respect that there is for Clive in, in the game that, because Steve actually said to him, you're one of the very few people who would actually understand this. So that tells you a lot. But the, the one player that he said he felt he had actually become genuinely friendly with over the years was Terry Griffiths, when mm. he couldn't know mm. Terry Griffiths for a long time without becoming friendly mm. with him because of the sort of person that he is. So that kind of underlines what, what you're saying there, that he did maintain a certain distance from it and, and and has always been very keen to do that and has always tried to remain objective in everything that he's he's done and everything he's written and uh, I, I know he, he spoke about it um that he was often sharing a commentary box with John Virgo over the years at the same time that John was WPBSA chairman and kind <laughs> was hammering him every month in snooker scene and they did actually talk about it at one stage and he said John was actually very very fair about it and was able to uh sort of understand where he was coming from so yeah that that's uh, that's the book that i've picked uh, for this week
1: yeah and by the way because a couple of people have asked me how clive is he's perfectly well he's obviously at an age where he has to be out of the out of the way while all this is going on so he's at home he he's got netflix which he's very he's very he's very happy about because he's never been one for sitting around doing nothing but he's been watching films and reading books and he's uh still the magazine at the moment not coming out but he's hoping to do a july issue and, um, you know, still following everything very closely. Um, so that's it then for this week. Uh, just one last reminder of the email address. You can email us about anything you want, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Any thoughts about the issues we've discussed or any issues you think we should discuss. Uh, but that's it. Michael, thank you for your company once again. Yes, and we will return next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.